Steve Green-Ushlag, hello and welcome to the very first episode of this podcast, which is being created by Wikimedia Community Ireland. It's Misha Amy, if got Gaelge, le Fubble, Wikipedia in the Heron. Uh, my name is Amy. Uh, I am the Irish Language Officer with Wikimedia Community Ireland. And we're an affiliate of the Wikimedia Foundation in Ireland, who are dedicated to fostering the creation, promotion and sharing of free knowledge. Our mission is to cultivate a culture of openness throughout Ireland. At Wikimedia Community Ireland, we aim to assist and inspire people to contribute educational, cultural and historical content to the public domain or under licenses that allow free use, distribution and modification. We collaborate with institutions to make their collections more accessible and also work towards preserving Ireland's heritage. Our goal is to safeguard and promote the Irish language while encouraging the release of materials both in Merle, in English, in Irish. Our goal this month is to release this podcast and the podcast inaugural episode is coinciding with the Wiki Loves Folklore campaign, which is a global campaign which is starting today on the day we're releasing this podcast, the 1st of February, and it's running up until the 31st of March. The campaign itself celebrates folklore globally. Part of that campaign is folklore and feminism, which focuses on women in folklore, cultural heritage, both tangible and intangible. Today, I'm joined by Orla Coslo, who is an educator and devotee of Bridget, both the Irish goddess and saint in the Irish tradition. She teaches classes online and runs an online community that shares resources on all things Bridget, as well as providing a space for those interested to engage with the syncretic practice of both pagan and Christian interpretations of this Irish deity. So, Gurmila Mila Magath Orla, Falcha Ruth. Gurmila, I'm delighted to be here. I'm sorry, my brain has ended up now. That's the most Irish you're going to get out of me, I'd say. That's, <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Uh, we're here to talk about Bridget anyway. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much for agreeing to be our first podcast um, interviewee. So I suppose first to start off, we know Bridget is or was a goddess in ancient Ireland. She is very much still a goddess as well mm -hmm. in the present day. And she's also a saint in the Christian tradition. So how can we tell which Bridget is which? Simple, <laughs> nice, a nice simple question to start off. Uh, it's quite difficult, bluntly speaking, right? And I think an awful lot of it depends on the perspective of the person who is seeing her as opposed to her herself. Um, I think that it's too difficult for us to grasp everything all at once. So we kind of grasp little bits along the way and some bits align more closely as to how we imagine a Christian saint would be and some bits align more closely as to how um, a pagan deity would be and that's how we then view them. You know, there is a school of thought that the the saint is meeker and milder. The stories we have don't bear that out. She is quite, she's one of my favorite saints because she has a temper. She doesn't have a problem using it. And she, she does bear those kind of commonalities with the deity as well. So realistically, if they show, if, if whatever or whoever you're talking to shows up with a four-armed cross, probably the saint um, and if you ask them out straight, hey, are you the saint or the deity? You might get an answer, and, but I'm not going to guarantee it. <laughs> that is fair enough. And 
like in terms of then the lore and the I suppose the the information that we have about Bridget from written sources and from then people studying the written sources is it kind of obvious when you're reading the written sources where the Christian influence has come in over the original pagan information kind of well you see the problem we have is that anything that's written down happened in the Christian era you know because Ireland didn't become literate until Christianity arrived, essentially. It was one of the ways they converted the the island by writing stuff down. And then the Irish discovered that you could spread stories by more than just talking them. And the whole world suffered since. Um, Suffered is probably the wrong word there. (laughs) But like, you know, if we're looking at, say, our earliest hagiography or life of the saint is by Cogitosis, which was in the mid to late 7th century. The earliest recorded written reference to the deity we have is the 10th or 11th century. That's Sonus Cormac, Cormus Glossary, right? So our earliest mention of the saint is three-ish centuries older than our earliest mention of the deity. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the deity didn't exist until the 10th century because, you know, oral traditions happen. Um, But what it does mean is that Christianity was really well established by the time we had the first mention of the deity. Mm-hmm. Now, the only thing is, right, that if you look at our mythology, all of our stories have been written down by Christian sources. I've said that. But when you look at it, like even in the, even at the ends of the scripts or in the margins or whatever, scribes would have written stuff like, you know, obviously any sensible modern man doesn't believe in any of this rubbish, but I faithfully recorded the story kind of thing, you know. So these were people who were recording their own stories, their own mythology. So they had a connection to it. But they were also kind of in that space where they're like, well, obviously we're modern and we're with us and all the rest of it. So we don't really believe this, but we're not going to risk recording it wrong. You know, that kind of way. Yeah. So there's there's an element there where, especially with Bridget, we have four mentions of her specifically. And there's not much in them that would indicate a heavy Christian influence. Mm -hmm. So if we take the Cormac's glossary, She's described as the goddess of poets and she was, her protection was so great that all the poets revered her. And then she's described as having two sisters, Bridget the Smith and Bridget the Healer. And they were so great that all the Irish goddesses were called Bridget. Now, that's a whole other discussion that we can veer into, but, you know, nothing there would indicate a major Christian influence, right? Next one, then, we can look at the the Lerogabala Erin, where we have, she's mentioned as having two ox with her, the, the king of the oxen. Uh, and men. She has the king of the boars, Threherna, and she has the king of the rams, Kerba. Again, not much there that would indicate a Christian influence. Mm-hmm. We've got Katmaitura, the second battle of Maitura, where her son Ruadon, she marries Bress, um, and there's an indication that might have been a severity goddess element to it. She's, she's outlined as the daughter of the Dagda. They have a son, Ruadon. Ruadon is, is, is downright daft if you ask me but anyway he goes and tries to attack Gwivnu the smith with one of his own spears and Gwivnu kills him essentially um, and Brig goes to the Fomorian camp the, the opposition camp basically to mourn her son mm. and just the, the the implication is she may have been reclaiming his body but it's it's not clear again nothing much there to indicate a heavy Christian influence and then the last one is she's potentially the mother of the children of Turin which is, um, which is one of the great sorrows of Ireland. Tragic story, um, but it's only in some of the recensions that she's listed as the mother of, Chur- as the, mother of the children of Turin. So we're not 100% sure on that one. And, and again, there isn't much there that would, that would say what we're learning about her is very Christianized. There just yeah. isn't anything in the stories that would be offensive 
to a Christian point of view. It, it's just not there. So it, it doesn't make sense that those parts would have been heavily edited. There's other parts of our mythology that we could have the discussion about. No problem at all. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I, I know this, the story, at least the, the Christian kind of story where she was being, and it, it seems like when you're talking there about her marriage to breasts and how that, how, how that was kind of a sovereignty kind of marriage. And it was, I suppose, kind of she like she was to Hidedan and he was from Ori and it was kind of mm-hmm. like a, a peacemaking um, Oh, it was a diplomatic marriage, yeah. Yeah. yeah but it, there's no indication that it was a love match or anything like that. Absolutely. And then, <clears throat> so say they get married, but then there's a, the, in the Christian story then, there's that famous story of her having an arranged marriage by her father who was a chieftain, a Gaelic chieftain, and then she plucks out her eye so she doesn't have to marry anybody. And yeah. then she heals it afterwards then. Uh, there's there's an even better part ev- uh, version of that story where uh, she plucks out her eye and her brothers are after her as well as the father because they get some of the payout, I think. And she not only plucks out her own eye, but then she loses it. So she robs her brother's eye. And like, it, this is one of the reasons she's one of my favorite saints, you know. <laughs> it's like, listen, <laughs> you screwed over me. I'm taking what I need here, you know. But it's just the practicality of it. You know, it's just like, you know, he's not going to want a one-eyed wench. So I'm going to pluck out my eye and I can live with one. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And like, obviously in the Christian version, then that's because she's so devoted to God and chastity and all, all the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she's, she's, she, she seems very practical in, in how she goes about things. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, an awful lot of what she, even throughout the, the stories about the saint, you know, like she is giving away her father's sword because she knows that when she gives it to the to the poor guy at the side, he'll be able to get money and feed himself. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a part where she is she's, I suppose, approached by two lepers and she's asked to heal them. And she basically says, you know, well, OK, you wash him and, and then you wash him and you'll both be cured. But then when the first guy is cured, he doesn't want to wash the other guy and risk catching leprosy again. So she just goes, well, screw you then. And she she gives him back leprosy and takes it off the other guy. You know, it's it's like there's a whole kind of, there's a fairness and a practicality and an approach she has that is very grounded, very kind of real. You absolutely. Know. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that comes back as well to the, you know, the poetry. And because at the time, like in ancient Gaelic Ireland, you have po- like poets weren't just writing nice, nice little mm. poems. They were very much you know, creating satires, holding leaders to account. They were cre- like cursing people effectively if mm-hmm. they weren't giving just judgment. So they would very much stand to reason that as, you know, the goddess of poets and as someone who was revered by a lot of poets, that she would have those kind of justice elements to her as well. Oh, absolutely. And if you if you look at it, you know, I I, I sometimes imagine the, the three sisters, the poet, the, the smith and the healer as kind of like, groups of a modern university you know so for me the poet is all the arts you know because they had to keep track of genealogies they had to do the praise poems they had to do the satires they had to do curses they had to hold the people in power to account they had to know about the literature they had to know the law all of that part of the 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 uni is there now if you want to go into it you know the healer is obviously medicine and veterinarian and psychology and psychiatry and all that sort of stuff. And then the Smith is, is my own favourite because that's the STEM things, you know, um, science, technology, engineering and maths. So, but like, if you're looking at, when we say poet in ancient Ireland, it, it's so much more than what we consider a poet now. And in fact, there's some evidence in the later periods of the Gaelic culture that the poet 
or the, the role of the poet, there was specializations within it. So you couldn't mm-hmm. just be a general poet anymore. You had to specialize in law or in genealogy or in cursing or in, you know, like there, there's all sorts of different specializations that happen after a time period, which is awesome. But it does fit into the fact that she would have a very, very grounded sense of justice, even as a saint. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I suppose uh, Bridget Smith, and you men- mentioned that's your, your favourite aspect. Um, obviously, you're an engineer yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And like, I kind of have this thing where Bridget Smith, it, it ties into engineering and um, very well because like engineering is kind of like a descendant of Smithcraft. But it also ties into my mission in life, which is to help women in underrepresented professions, particularly in engineering. I live for the day where someone hears that I'm an engineer and doesn't go, oh, wow, that's great. Well done you. You know, I want it to just be normal. Yeah. Uh, but like, I really feel that Bridget has an insight into how this would work because, you know, when you're looking at these professions, in particular, the, the Smith and the poet, we're not talking about egalitarian lifestyles here. You know, I know you sometimes hear someone picking up one of the Brehan laws and saying that ancient Ireland was this feminist utopia. It, it very definitely wasn't. You know, the word of a woman was literally worth half the word of a man. A woman's honor price was worth a percentage of her husband's kind of thing or a percentage of her father's. So there isn't that egalitarian thing. So to have a woman in a profession, to be acknowledged as the goddess of poets, to be acknowledged as the goddess of smiths, or even if you look at the three brigs of Ulster, you know, Brig Bricu, Brig Breha and Brig Ambu. So these were, you know, a hospitaller. So essentially extremely rich. Uh, then you have the the Brehev, which is a, a judge, and then you have Brigambu, who was the the Brig of the Cowless, which was helping the powerless in the, in society. Like to be so named, and to have these appellations, and to have these professions, like they had to be outstanding to do it, or there had to be very particular circumstances when that happened. So I have a strong connection with Bridget being in those male-dominated areas or professions or environments. And I like that's, you know, the Smith is just the natural ancestor. But like that, that kind of whole, she's the only woman in a crowd of men kind of image. It, it, it resonates deeply with me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is one of the reasons that I wanted to invite you on, <laughs> particularly with the feminism and folklore yeah. focus that we're doing. Um, Just like she, she really is that kind of icon. And it, it kind of also, that's kind of, particularly in the last couple of years when her festival has been given the bank holiday and been given the recognition, it's really seen in, I suppose, the zeitgeist in Ireland and the culture, cultural yeah. shift in Ireland at the moment. It is, it is. And like, you do have to consider as well, like, you know, she's, she's acknowledged as having founded the, the monastery at, Kild- at Kildare, right? We, we don't have a plethora of female saints that founded monasteries or founded monastic settlements. And... Up until, like this was in the, in the 5th and 6th centuries she lived, up until the 12th century, like all of the, the abbesses of Kildare were known as the successor of Bridget. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like that, that held true and it took some really horrible events, you know, and some really power grabbing, horrific stuff going on to, to, to end that primacy, you know. So like even in the saint, we still have this kind of, woman in a man's world type situation which she was such a, a powerful woman in her own right while she was alive that she was acknowledged as this powerhouse that she founded the, uh, the, the monastic settlement that can dare and she was deemed the leader not her male counterpart so that, that's a major thing you know it's, it's not just a 
it's it, it's not a common thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we think of like the three main saints in Ireland, you think of St. Bridget, obviously, you think of Colum Kill and you think of obviously Patrick being mm-hmm. being the patron, patron saint and very much patron saint. So mm-hmm. looking at that then, so despite her being so popular, despite her, you know, being this trailblaze and this revered figure by poets and with this, with very much an ancient kind of history to her, she wasn't made her, made our patron saint. But Patrick no. was. So yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. But obviously, like, why, why do you think that is? <laughs> Patriarchy and the propaganda machine in Arma. <laughs> that's, that's basically my opinion on that. So when you're looking at 7th seventh, seventh century Ireland, Arma and Kildare are kind of fighting for the primacy of the, of the country, right? And that's why we get Cogitosis' first life of St. Bridget. And it's written in Latin. And he starts off and... You know, it, it, he's really kind of singing the praises of Kildare. It's this massive city and it's it part travel brochure as well. It's like, you know, we've got the we've got this gorgeous jeweled tomb, like come and see us and, you know, give us your money, basically. But he's also kind of saying like this was established by a holy woman and he goes through all the miracles and the life and all the rest of it. But at the same time, we've got our ma who have got an even better propaganda machine and they're pumping out more and more and more. And also we have writings from Patrick, which we don't have from Bridget. Mm. Now, there's a part of me that kind of has this feeling that she's kind of looking over my shoulder going, well, you try running a bloody monastic settlement and having time to write stuff. You know, <laughs> like it's just like, you know, and, and this is a personal thing, right? It's not a it's not a general accepted notion, but like it would have been quite busy to run it. Whereas Patrick never ran his settlements. He, he was, you know, doing different stuff and traveling around the country and he was educated. He came from a background where he would have been taught to read and write as a child. But Bridget may not have been because mm. she was born the daughter of a slave in some of the hagiographies. Her father was a, a chieftain or a druid, depending on what you read. Her mother, Brickshuk, was a slave. She's, she's named as a bondmaid. They mean a slave. Mm. So we're not talking about someone who had the elevated start in life that Patrick did. The other thing is that the the church, as most of society was at the time, was patriarchal. And particularly from the 12th century on, you have this move where the, the monastic settlements are moving more towards what they call the Augustinian rule, which is much more strict and stringent. And the whole permeable nature of the Irish monastic settlements wouldn't have been acceptable. So by permeable, I mean the Irish, the, 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 the original setups of monastic settlements in Ireland you could go in as a child to be educated, go out and live your life, come in again for another while, do another bit, go out and live your life, come in when you're old to teach the next generation, die, whatever. There, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a conception that once you were in, you were in for life. It was much more of a back and forth and it was a community and it was kind of engaged in the, in the local society kind of thing, you know. Whereas when you look at the Augustinian and particularly after the 12th century, it's much more you come in, you come in as a novitiate. You become, you know, you become a full brother or you become a full monk. And that's it. Like, you know, leaving is kind of unheard of. And also in Ireland, you tend to find communities of men and women living together. And I mean, side by side, whereas with the the Augustinian style ruling, it was very definitely separate settlements for the two genders, because there were only two genders in medieval world, you know, as far as the church was concerned anyway, there that's a decision, a discussion for another time. I'm fairly certain there was more than that even then. But, Absolutely. you know, as far as the church was concerned, you were male, you were female. That, that was kind of it, you know, for the most part. There's a few anomalies on that as well. But 
you ended up with this whole power structure and by the 12th century, the church is getting to that wealthy power structure stage where it's an institution. It's not a religion anymore. Mm. And that all feeds into the fact that Patrick ended up our patron saint because how could you have a female patron saint? You know, and I feel it's quite hard done by right because of our three patron saints, Bridges is the only one who was born here, who lived here and who died here. Right. Patrick was an immigrant. Cullum Kill was an emigrant. Mm-hmm. Possibly voluntary, possibly involuntary, but definitely an emigrant. Right. And so Bridges was the only one that stayed all the time and supported the people of Ireland all the time. And that kind of ties into why I'm not too worried about the difference between the goddess and the saints either, because there's an awful lot of continuity there where the people of Ireland needed the support. And then the people of Ireland took Bridges worldwide. Mm hmm. Basically, because as everybody knows, you know, as soon as the first explorers turned up in deep, deepest, darkest Australian bush, there was an Irish pub there waiting for them, you know. <laughs> but like um, when when we spread, when we emigrate, we, we, we take Bridget with us and we have done for centuries. So she is ours in a way that Patrick would not be. But Patrick represented the institution of the church in a way that Bridget never could. Mm hmm. You know, she just came from the wrong background. She didn't have the right credentials. She didn't fit, essentially. Yeah. By the time the 12th century came around, she just didn't fit. That was yeah. a long answer to a very short question. Sorry about that. No, <laughs> don't be. Don't be it's, a, it's, it's fascinating. And I, like I knew, I knew a bit about the, the kind of Patrick story, I suppose, when I was doing my master's. One of the lecturers in Carlo College has written a book. I will remember to put it down in the description of the video for later but um, she wrote a book about the, the cult of Patrick and the kind of mm. PR machine that was there and it's really really fascinating because so much of the history of St. Patrick that we're told in primary school is completely incorrect yes so and it's all based on the later hagiographies, but not based on his own confessio which by his own admission he didn't actually do that much yeah um, so it's just it's really interesting to to get the other side and yeah no don't ever apologise for, <laughs> for giving such an in-depth answer it's brilliant so I was going to ask you about sources, but you've kind of been dotting sources throughout, throughout as you've been going along, which I really appreciate. But I suppose to come back to like you've already kind of touched on it. So but just to kind of underpin it properly, how reliable are the sources? Obviously, you've said that there is a Christian influence in them and they're obviously written down by majority men and probably mm-hmm. also translated from Old Irish and, and Latin by men as well. So mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about that? So the translate, we have we have a few problems with the translations that we have currently um, with most of the Irish scripts in that um, even as late as, say, the, the Peg Sayers book, you know, that 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 was tormenting a lot of Irish students for many generations for being dreary and miserable and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. The, the original stories are a lot dirtier and a lot more interesting than what gets passed on to school children. And we have this kind of. 19th, 20th century set of translations, late 19th century, 20th century set of translations from Old Irish, but they have been cleaned up. Mm -hmm. And so we are lucky, right, in that we have Irish scripts on screen that if you can read the script, you can figure out what they're saying. And then you, if you can teach yourself Old Irish, you can translate for yourself. Number one, I have no interest in learning either Old Irish or the scripts they use because like, you know, you can get like the, the, the whole, what is the name of that Old Irish script? Clo Gaelic. No, 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 not the Clo Gaelic. The, 
the one that you know they they can fit so much information on one page like you, you could nearly get like 30 generations of stories into the into the one page it's the it's the half or the semi something can't remember I'll find it anyway but right. the whole point of it was it was developed so that you can fit a whole load of a story onto single sheets of mm. manuscript because the paper was the was the awkward part like ink was reasonably straightforward paper was difficult good quality paper was even worse mm. now you're looking at vellum which is essentially calfskin and Ireland is a country where cattle are still important have been important for millennia and I can't see them going away anytime soon but at the same time the preparation of the vellum and stuff was so difficult to get perfect that you had to kind of be very very careful and be very resourceful with how you used it and like that's kind of why you got this this script that developed that literally just squished everything in and you could fit so much in there you know and I it's, I'm cursing myself I can't remember the fucking name of it but anyway what was I talking about before I started oh yeah so if you want to teach yourself old Irish if you want to learn how to how to read that script you can actually read these there, there's pictures online to do it and in fact I will not learn old Irish modern Irish is fine for me thank you very much um, but like we do have people like Morgan Daimler right there who is self-taught old Irish and who does a lot of translation work and a lot of her books are available that that have the the Irish, the, the old Irish, the modern Irish and the, the English all together so you can see what she's pulling. So you don't even have to work out the the, the, the manuscript text. You can, you can just read it and follow on. And, and that kind of work is really valuable in the modern terms because the the language, the understanding of the language, the, the study of the linguistics develops over time as well. So that what people thought in late 1800s into the 1900s is not necessarily what's accurate today because there's further research being done. There's further work being done on the language and scholars have developed more understanding about various bits and pieces. So, for example, the first place I go to for my hagiographies is usually the UCC Celt site. Mm -hmm. Because there, anything that's on there, it's really available. You have to search a bit sometimes, and you have to root around. But like, there's typed versions of both the original text and English translations. But what's on there is generally the Whitley Stokes translations for the stuff that I'm interested in for for the for the Bridget bits. And Whitley Stokes was a essentially Victorian gentleman, and as we know, sex didn't exist for the Victorians except mm -hmm. when it did, and they got really kinky. But in public, it didn't. So there's whole bits of the manuscript that kind of just get glossed over, mm -hmm. you know? And then you have people like Lady Wilde who was coming along and she was gathering folklore and all the rest of it. Again, though, cleaning it up to suit um, a genteel kind of aristocratic audience that she was writing for and not really capturing the dirty bits, essentially. Yeah. And everyone knows it's the dirty bits that make the story interesting. Absolutely. So, like, why else would you listen to a good story? But, like, all of this is kind of missed out. So this, these modern translations are hugely important to, to support and get into. But it is fairly sanitized. Yes. But like it, it's possible. If you really want to, it's possible to learn how to read that script and to learn how to translate it yourself. It takes a lot of work, but it is technically possible. The, the, the Irish scripts on screen, I can't say how awesome it is to look through. And it's, it's essentially photographs. So if you go to the Book of Fermoy in, in one of them, and you see the front cover and you can literally work your way through page by page mm -hmm. and see everything that's on there, including the original marginalia, including the stains, including everything. It's just all on there. It's freely available. So there's, there's nothing stopping anyone doing that. They really want to. Like Absolutely. I said, it's, it's not work I feel called to myself. I have enough to be doing, but 
there, there are people out there that can do it. But because of this, it's it's easier for us to be able to revisit these older translations and to be able to figure out the missing bits and to be able to fill in the gaps. And and, and that's kind of important. So like most of our, most of the influences on it are not so much even the Christian ones that I'm worried about. It's the, it's, it's the, um, the sanitization. That's mm. the part that, that I'm concerned about because you do miss vital parts of stories when you cut out bits. Absolutely, absolutely. And yet the work that Morgan Downey is doing, they're doing a fantastic job in doing the translations. And I know that they're at their, they've done the Kothmai Jorah and yep. they're working on the tone at the moment. So I'm really looking forward to those coming. And again, I'll put the resources and links and stuff down in the description for anybody yep. that's interested. But it is like it is a, it's a very it's it's a very heavy workload to you know teach yourself an entirely new language by yourself because if you're not mm-hmm. if if you don't have thousands to go to college um to learn how to do it and even at that you're not necessarily you know going to be learning what you what you want to be learning either yeah so yeah absolutely and then also like making those kind of things accessible and freely available the UCC Celt website is fantastic. But if you are, say, someone that uses a screen reader, you're not going to be able to to read those at all. So yeah. it's really, really great that there are people doing that work and absolutely power to them. I'm the same. I, I don't have time to be learning Old Irish right now. It's something that maybe when I'm retired, I'd, I'd love to do <laughs> <laughs> if I ever retire. Yeah. Um, One thing I will also say, right, you know, and I'm, I'm not doing an ad for Morgan Daimler here at all, but they do have a book on Bridget where they have those um, excerpts from the, the various manuscripts and they have translated them. So, and it's not just Irish Bridget she's dealing with, she's dealing with the Scottish and the Welsh and the Manx and all the rest of it, but she does have a section with the, the Irish excerpts as well and they are translated and I trust her translations, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would trust Morgan as well. They do fantastic work. Mm. Um, so, I suppose that's, that's on the sources anyway. So there's like, there are lot, lots of sources, but it's, again, it's just teasing out the little bits and where they've yeah. been where they've kind of been changed. And of course, as as I said as well, like a lot of this translation work with the Whitley Stokes, like that was a Victorian man with Victorian sensibilities and also coming from a male perspective, which yeah. is going to, especially talking about an Irish goddess, yeah. is going to change things. It does. It, it absolutely does. I mean, even down to, you know, uh, she's down as, oh, the, the phrase is... Um, Ban Lyish, which is a, a woman of medicine in mm. the in the text, and um, he's brought he's he's translated that to female healer, and um, I think that's the word. But there's a there's a connotation that it was like he missed out on a connotation that it was a midwife as opposed to um, something more general, mm. and you know that's not necessarily something you'd pick up on straight away, but also we're not sure if the original uh, thinking was that she was a midwife or whether she happened to be. The female Dean Kate, mm. you know, we, we just don't know, but like we have to work with what we've got from the sources. Absolutely. And, you know, it's those little subtleties, those nuances that that change what you think when you see it. Because like a female healer in modern times, we just think like, you know, oh, yeah, woman doctor, Do you know, like it, it doesn't mean anything. Whereas, you know, if the connotation was that this was a, a midwife or, or a woman who looked after women's problems, Do you know, and through Ireland, through the generations, we've had women who serve that function in society, yeah. you know, because going to a doctor for most of Irish history wasn't an option because of cost. And even if you did, you'd be embarrassed to go to a male doctor to talk about women's stuff because they weren't meant to know about it, you know. 
So like we've had this tradition of, of female healers and of midwives and things like that. You know, and it was very often the same woman that brought you into the world that sent you out of it. Mm. There were also the, the mourners at the funeral, which again ties into Bridget and the, the grief side of it from, from Ruadon. So like there's all these connotations and nuances that are missed when you have someone coming from a particular perspective that possibly looking at it in a different perspective, you'd have picked up on a little bit easier. Absolutely. And and, and those women, be it a Ban Fasa, a, like wise woman, or be it a Ban Light medicine woman, or a Ban Krinche, which is the, the Keening women, as you know yourself, but th- like they had, they had specific roles. Like particularly in the case of the Bankrinja, like she had a very specific role. But with the Banlight and the Banfasa, you could be going to her for counselling, for mm-hmm. like psych- effectively psychotherapy back in the day, um, midwife services, a general cure, a magical mm-hmm. cure, herbalism, or what have you. Like, oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, look at there's there's stories. There's stories that get told about, you know, wives going, wives going to the, to the Banfasa about, you know, marital problems or the Banfasa interfering when she sees something not going right or, you know, like there's all sorts of different kind of elements of that. And when a community doesn't have access to what we would consider the professionals in the modern world, they don't have access to a counsellor, they don't have access to a psychologist, but you have this woman who, you know, has built up the experience because she's had to then you use what's there you absolutely. know absolutely and they and they would have been feared and also respected oh yeah um, in their communities as well there's, there's nothing wrong with it with a bit of respect tinged with fear you know like that's fine <laughs> and like you know I, th- I think that's really just really what an Irish mommy is isn't it yeah and um, we fierce respect for the Irish mommies but we also are terrified of them um especially if they have a wooden spoon in hand absolutely <laughs> <laughs> So um, I'm going to ask you one final question uh, before we wrap up because we're I think we're coming on to an hour now. So obviously this um, episode of the podcast is going out on Bridget's Day. We are recording it Bridget's Eve or the, the mm-hmm. 31st of January. Um, I have the brat breed out on the bush and the brat breed is a piece of cloth that you leave out the night before uh, Bridget's Day. So she imbues it with mm-hmm. some healing magic and um, which is a is practiced all around the country and I'm really glad to see particularly in recent times that that has gotten a really big resurgence with all this you know interest that's been drummed up with Bridget. What are some of the common practices found around Ireland the other ones and what ones would you engage with then as a devotee of Bridget? So my broth hasn't actually got out yet tonight that's why I was looking around because it used to be on that shelf but I've actually put it in the bag over there because I was doing something else with it. So mine's going out when we're finished. (laughs) Uh, mine doesn't actually go on the bush. It just gets tied to the inside of the door handle and then pecked out. Uh, but like, right, just just on the broth regia, very, very briefly, Amy, because people panic about what they should use for the broth regia, right? I mean, I have seen football scarves. I have seen tea towels. I have seen beautiful pieces of Irish li- linen painfully embroidered. You know, when we're talking about these traditions, we have to remember that these are living traditions that have come down through generations of Irish people who were typically broke Mm -hmm. and had to use what was available. So if you want to have a special cloth to use for your Brotherija, fire ahead. Otherwise, use what you've got available. You don't have to go out and buy something special. You know, in previous years, I have used a sock because one of my major health issues is I've dodgy ankles and the sock is easier than winding a a ribbon around 300 times Mm -hmm. because it's all there and just pull it on and you're sorted like, you know. So be practical about this as well. Like there's no point 
in um, like one of the things I'm going to talk about is a Bridget's Cross, right? And traditionally, the Bridget's Cross is made out of rushes or possibly corn, depending on what you have available, right? People panic because they're like, you know, I, I can't use rushes. Like we're under six feet of snow. I said, well, the reason the Irish use rushes is because they're everywhere and they're free. You know, like yeah. there's this like, you know, obviously there's symbolism in that they grow where, you know, land, sea and sky meet. But practically speaking, they're everywhere in this country and they're free. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're readily available. Anyone can go out and get rushes. So what I would say is that if you're looking at making a Bridges Cross and you can't get rushes, look, look for something in your natural environment. Look for something that you can bend in two without breaking and look for something that is a natural substance of some description, right? Now, I have had people say, you know, with the six feet of snow, all I've got is bare trees. And then that's where you can look into something like a natural fiber, like a wool yarn or something. And you can either knit it or you can weave it or you can just fold it and put it on a backing of paper and glue it in place, whatever you need, right? When we were growing up in school, we made Bridget's crosses every year. There was times they were made out of pipe cleaners. Not the first choice I would make, but like if you really want to make a bridge cross and pipe cleaners is all you have in the house, go for it, right? Mm-hmm. There's loads of videos online to figure out how to make them. I will say that the four-armed cross is easier to start with. And, and if you want to do the three-armed cross, I do the four-armed cross first and then move up to the three-armed cross just because you're in the habit of it then and it gets easier, you know. But the Bridget's cross was used to protect the house against fire. It was also used in cowsheds. And there are some stories from around the country where you would have a Bridget's Cross over a particularly valuable animal. And the idea was that it would protect the house from fire. Now, you also have different traditions over what to do with the crosses. So you would have houses where you'd go in and you'd see several crosses from previous years in thatch. The tradition I would be most used to is that you could give a Bridget's Cross to a newlywed couple or, you know, when someone buys their first house. And if you're buying the one that isn't like you can get them in in all sorts of metals and stuff these days, like, you know, but like that, it would be home over the door that you use most often, you know, because not necessarily the front door, because in Irish country life, you use the front door when you get married and you're dead. Yeah. Right. So other than that, it's the, the Pope or the Queen visiting and that's it. Right. So even the mother doesn't get the front door. Right? And in fact, it can be an insult to use the front door <laughs> if you if you use it properly. So you'd use it at the door that you use most often. And, and that's, that's where the, the, breath, the blessing and the protection comes from. You can also make what is known as a brie joke, which is basically a corn doll, essentially. It's a rough shape. You would dress it up in your best clothes most often. And this would be very often led in procession around the parish or around the village or around the group of houses that you're in. And we have to be a bit loose with the term we use because, as you know, Amy, Irish rural settlements don't really fit the, the village mould a lot. Yeah. You could have like, you know, your nearest neighbour could be halfway down the road, half a mile down the road or further. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, when we say the parish, the parish or the village or the settlement, these can be quite considerable areas, right? But you you would have a tradition similar to the Wren Boys on St. Stephen's Day where the Bree Joke would be brought from house to house and you have various stories and dukas about how she'd be welcomed into the house. You would also have isolated houses where either the man of the house or the eldest daughter or the daughter that was called Bridget, depending on the story, um, because most families did have a Bridget eventually. Yeah. Um, and they would welcome him in. And there's various prayers and sayings that you'd have about it. There's also the Lyaba Bridget, which is Bridget's bed, which you'd put beside the fire. And again, it's where you put the Bridget into it for the night. But very simply made out of corn or rushes or 
you know, whatever you had available. And when you smoured the fire for the evening, because in Irish tradition, we burn turf and it's very easy to keep it smouldering all night without causing fire damage elsewhere. So you'd have ashes on the floor. And in the morning, if you saw footprints of Bridget in the ashes, it was a sign of prosperity for the coming year. And one of the other things about prosperity that you can have in this evening is that if you put out, you would have it for farmers, they would put out a sheaf of corn. Uh, fishermen, there's stories in the west of Ireland where they would put a, a shell or something to represent the fish in each of the corners of the house. And, and the idea was that Bridget would bless these, these symbols of prosperity and that that would multiply your prosperity for the coming year. So I don't work in farming and I don't work in fishing, but I have put out in the past paper or maybe a few coins or something like that to indicate what prosperity means to me. And, and that kind of works with what I'm doing. Let's see, what else have we got? There's a lot. There's, there's an awful there is, lot. There, back, is, you know? there is, there um, is. But from the, after, after, well, this, this will be more in recent years, right? Because it was after the spud arrived in Ireland. Now, by recent, I mean 17th century on. Um, but there would be a tradition that you'd have a great big mound of mashed spuds with butter to, to, to celebrate the, 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 the occasion. And you would have the whole family making rushes around it kind of thing. And it was a family occasion, you know? And um, I do very often get asked, get asked what food you should include in your inbox celebration. Honestly, if you're making a celebration and you want it to include food, include food that you find is celebratory, right? I wouldn't necessarily go with spuds because, you know, the, the, the history of potatoes in this island is dodgy to say the least. And the reasons that it has become synonymous with Ireland is purely colonialism, mm -hmm. you know. It's not really that the Irish took a great liking for the spud and said, yay, it's our national dish forevermore. It was more that it was the best crop that you could support a huge amount of people on a tiny piece of land year after year after year. Yeah. And equally, if you were going to base a diet around one food, the spud is probably your best bet because it has the greatest spread of vitamins and minerals and all the rest of it to support you. Once you have spuds and then a bit of dairy, you're pretty much balanced in terms of your nutritional needs from a food base. But that's no reason to impose it on a whole second island like, you know. Not looking anywhere, but I am looking east at our neighbours to, <laughs> to blame them for that. But then if you're looking at other stuff you can do, right, um, the spring clean is massively associated with, with this time of year because it would be the time that the houses are open up after the winter and you're kicking kids out again and you're getting some breezes and air and stuff through them. If you're looking at foods, look at foods that are available naturally, locally, if you really want to go for that, right? There's a tradition um, going around the place and I don't know where it came from, but it's not based on any Irish lore that yellow foods, yellow and round foods are the way to go for in bulk. And this is tied into this kind of weird thing that some people have that Bridget is a sun deity. Don't even get me started, right? And they tied into, the, I think where it comes from is there's a link between pancakes and in bulk. There isn't, right? The only link we have in this country between pan pancakes and in bulk or pancakes and Bridget Day is a trope Tuesday is coming up sometime in the next month. And yeah. in the 80s in Ireland, certainly, the only time of the year that you got pancakes was Shrove Tuesday, which is the day before Ash Wednesday, which is the day before Ash uh, Lent starts. And the reason you got them that day was because you were using up eggs and butter because you weren't meant to eat them during Lent. Yep. Right? These days, you can have pancakes whenever you want. But I'm almost certain there was a law or something because you could not have pancakes any other day. It was huge excitement every year that you got them on Shrove Tuesday. But it's only circumstantial that it's, neck, it's close to the celebration of Imbolc or the celebration of Bridget's Day, there's no real connection there. And this is why it kind of disturbs me when I see some of the stuff that's around the place on the internet. People are get adding one and one and getting 20 
you know, that there's no real link there in practicality. Now, if you do want foods, right, dairy, go for dairy. Huge connections between Bridget and dairy, right? She's often described as working in the dairy as, as a saint. She's connected to the, the, the cattle as a deity. You know, we, we have this image over her as being, you know, connected to dairy in general. You can mm-hmm. also have it connected to beef. You can have it connected to mutton, to lamb, to bacon. Always a favourite. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that you can connect her to in terms of food. You can also look at the, the kind of the foods that are available this time of year. If you're winter vegetables, all that sort of thing. That's what's available, right? There, there are a few people around the place saying seeds are connected to Bridget. Not necessarily in terms of eating, because eating seeds in the Irish tradition is only a very, very recent thing, like in the mm. last couple of decades. You know, like when I was growing up, the notion of eating seeds was linked to eating your seed crop for the next year, as opposed to eating what we would now describe as sunflower seeds or pumpkin seeds or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you want to bring in the symbolism of the seeds and the planting and the growing and all the rest of it, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not a generations old tradition. That's the only thing, you know. What else would you do? There's lots of stuff you can do. Like in, in Connemara, they had the whole thing. Well, in Galway, anyway, they had the whole thing about the Krishbrija, where it was basically a long rope made out of corn or straw. And it was good luck to jump through it if you're a man. Oh. And if you're a woman, they'd, they'd lower it down from the head down. You'd step out over it because it was a bit harder to jump through it with a skirt. Yeah. And again, if you had a good, if you had a, a, fresh, a really good animal, you'd, you'd pass it over them as well, you know, to, to, to bring the look for the year and to keep the health going and all the rest of it. Very good. So kind of similar to the kind of walking through the fire at Bales and that kind of, yeah. yeah. Same kind of thought process. That's really interesting. I hadn't actually, I hadn't heard that. So that's really, really interesting. Um, one question I know I said that was the last question but I'm just one more question because you mentioned <laughs> you say you're all nice it's and, you, I know, and I would you know um, <laughs> since you brought up seeds and you because I something I didn't specifically ask but um, since you brought up the seeds and you brought up the planting and the new life and the, the rest of it uh, the myth I suppose or the, the common misconception of Bridget being a fertility goddess uh, is that to do with her her associations with midwifery is it to do with the spring is it kind of a is it kind of a mismatch of the both I honestly think it's because she's a female deity and a female saint and as a deity she had the temerity to have a son there's there's nothing really like I mean in the Irish pantheon we don't tend to have those clear cut areas of responsibility you know you don't tend to go to this specific deity for this specific thing, it's more like they they're all a few kind of odd job men. Like yeah. if you look at if you look at the Dagda, right, who's listed as Bridget's father, you know, he's got a connection to the heavens, that you know, the sun, the moon, the stars. He's got a connection to time. He's got a connection to he's have a stronger f- connection to fertility than Bridget would. Yeah. Because one of his epithets is Ulahar, which is not all father, but great father or father of many. So, you know, he would have a stronger connection to fertility. But in saying that, if you're looking at kind of the medieval practices and things, female saints would have been a typical way to approach uh, a woman who was having problems getting pregnant or whatever. Mm. Equally, um, St. Bridget is known in the Irish as the midwife of Christ. The fact that she was born four and a half centuries after he was, nothing to do with anything. All right. The, 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 The temporal laws of time and space do not apply here. Right. Just give up on that straight away. Uh, she was she sorry the midwife to Mary and the, the foster mother of Christ and she is reputed in Irish in Irish folklore 
much later Irish folklore, not from the, the 5th and 6th centuries, to have helped the Holy Family escape to Egypt. And there's a few stories around that. So you could say there is a link, but it would be more on the saint side rather than the, the deity side. Mm. In saying that, if you've got a relationship with Bridget, I have known many people who work with Bridget, whether saint or deity, who have reached out to her for help with fertility. I've done it myself. Didn't quite work for me. Has worked for other people. You know, it, it's more about the relationship with her than her specific area of responsibility. I get you. And and like, I, I suppose that would, well, it wouldn't be, I suppose, the same with every, every deity, because obviously there are, she'd probably be one of the better ones given her healing and her, her yeah. kind of, that kind of role with her. Um, she'd have better associations with it. But I suppose reducing her to just being a fertility goddess is not the way to go about it at all. I, I mean, you can try. I wouldn't advise it and I'd like warning before you do so I can get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> so my final, final point will just be, can you let us know where we can find you? Because I know you have a blog <laughs> and you have loads of other things that you're doing as well. Yeah. All right. So I have a blog. If you go to mybridgetsforge.com and that'll take you there. That has links to the school and the Bridget's Forge Facebook group. You can also find us with the Bridges Sports Facebook group if you search for us. And I will say there are three questions to answer before you get into the before you get into the group. People forget to answer them all the time, and I'm fairly strict about the the kind of the community that we're building there. So you know that's why we have those those questions out there. And um, I've also just started a podcast. You can find me Bridges Forge on YouTube. There's like I think as many as four or five, up to five or six minutes long <laughs> episodes on there. And uh, there's a Patreon as well if you want to search us out there. Amazing. Thank you. I will leave all those links in the description below so people can find you. Um, again, Orla, for coming on and chatting to me. Um, it's been really, really insightful. Um, I've lots and lots of sources now to go back to the Vic page <laughs> and also uh, the Wikipedia page so I can update those to make sure that we're giving the best information that we can on those. To everybody who has watched this video, please let us know what you thought down in the, in the comments. And stay tuned as we explore more fascinating topics related to the Wikimedia Community Ireland mission. And also, particularly for the next two months, we're going to be doing a lot on feminism and folklore. So feel free to subscribe. We will be sharing a lot more really strong female characters and deities and figures from Irish folklore over the next while. Slán!